No! Repel them! I want to let you roll first. This is exciting. Ah! You're bigger than the same. You did it! Well, that's that. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we find any hidden treasures that you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up, we tilt in tourneys and slay dragons, but can't forget to crack a book once in a while at the Medieval Academy. Next up, Black Flags and Union Jacks clash in the Caribbean in British versus Pirates. And lastly, ladies and gentlemen, today's leisure activities will be canceled, and we ask that you please direct your attention to the escape pods conveniently located nearby as we are currently being surrounded by vicious aliens in Survive Space Attack. I'm your host, Celeste Angelus. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hello, I'm Evan Bernstein, and you need never worry, for I never deal from the bottom of the deck. Hi, I'm Ed Povolitis, and no more things should be presumed to exist than are absolutely necessary. William of Ockham. This is Joe Onfried Fresh from PAX Philadelphia. Couldn't get a tan down there, but we met a lot of great people who make great games. Ahoy, mateys, I'm Mike Grenier, and I take what I can and give nothing back. <laughs> With the new year fast approaching, we have some great Witch Game First developments to tell you about. Yes, we're taking things on the road, in a manner of speaking. In 2019, we will be covering board gaming conventions live and in recap shows. We have a ton of fun guests from the gaming world coming on in the early part of the year. And of course, we'll be continuing our intrepid explorations to bring you the great and not-so-great games we unearth. We'll also be adding more exclusive content for our patrons. And whether you support us through Patreon or by writing reviews, which we love, or by sharing, retweeting, or liking, or posting about us, we wanted to thank you for helping us grow faster than we expected. And we are so grateful you are on this adventure with us. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks again. Our first game up this week is Medieval Academy, designed by Nicholas Ponkin, published by Aiello Games in 2014, number of players 2 to 5, ages 8 and up, runtime 30 minutes. Okay, first impressions, Evan, let's start with you. Who shall stand the tests of becoming a knight in King Arthur's court? I now pass me the mead. And Ed, how about you? My lady, I fear I must beg your leave, as I have to conduct my studies with the scribe. Hoist the lamp to doubt in the afternoon, feed the poor in the conservatory later, before I head out to slay the dragon tomorrow. <laughs> Busy life. <laughs> and Mike, how about you? Well, first thing I noticed was there are no words anywhere on the game, just a bunch of symbols. And I hope I can actually understand all these symbols and what they mean soon. <laughs> Joe, how about you? So what is it, exactly, that turns a promising squire into the perfect knight? In this game, it turns out to depend on quite a lot. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, I thought my family would just buy me a kit and colors and voila, I'm a knight. <laughs> what do you mean I have to give to the poor and go to school? Uh -huh. <laughs> but before we get started, Joe, tell us a little bit about how it's played. This game is all about victory points, or VP, which are awarded and occasionally taken away from many different sources. There are seven tracks printed on board, such as jousting and gallantry, that can get you victory points. You have the discretion on how to divide your focus, but don't spread yourself too thin. Players build a hand of cards using a drafting process and use that hand of cards to advance on the boards. 
Some boards can score you a bit each round, while others are designed to reward long-term planning. I really like their drafting mechanics in the game. It's really easy to learn, but it's always a tough choice of which card you want to choose because you're only going to be able to play four of them. There's seven different races going on in the game. Wow. How did I end up with this? I did not even know I picked these. <laughs> you forgot what you picked. Yeah. I told, I'm like, oh, I need one of those. Then I did it again. Then I did it again. I'm like, I can use one of those. Yo, you already have three. It is a real challenge figuring out which cards to keep because you cannot focus on one board. The reason you definitely can't focus no matter what is there are two cards that give you negative points if you don't put stuff on them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I got crushed on the education board, not because I didn't want to be educated, but I just couldn't get my hands <laughs> on any of those cards. It's a tragic story about these young squires who fall through the cracks in the educational system. <laughs> I, Too I late keep, party at night. No books for I'm you. I'm looking for a book, and they keep handing me a sword. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Oh, I, I was definitely doing well pleasing the king. But uh, I could not get educated somehow. He doesn't care about that, apparently. You know, and instead of dragon slaying or even looking at the princess on the princess board, I was in the soup kitchen like 24-7 on that charity board. <laughs> you were doing pretty good in the tournaments, too, though. Do you know how hard it is to serve soup in a full suit of plate mail? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I mean, there's leather in the joints of those armors. So, I mean, you spill anything. You're never going to get the smell of like, chicken <laughs> soup or whatever out of your armor. Sir <laughs> Chicken of Occam. <laughs> so the way you get your cards in your hand is to draft them you start with five you take one of the ones that looks good to you and pass the rest to your left um sometimes you you really need one of the tracks to get filled up and you might only have a two because the cards are like two through five and so you might be forced to take that one and play it just because you're falling so far behind yeah um another thing is some of the tracks reset every third turn and some of them don't reset until the end of the game or they don't reset at all and uh, so those ones, you're slowly trying to chip away at them and just kind of stay far enough ahead of other people that they don't just surpass you in like one or two turns. And, and you kind of have to take the opportunities when they come because you really aren't going to win by taking low cards just because you need that track. You really need to take high cards when you can. Right. But you can also get you have a surprising amount of information, too, in a sense, because uh, even though you're only going to draft five cards through the drafting process, you end up seeing over half the cards. So you have an idea what's out there. Yeah. How often did you guys sort of change that last card? Meaning you're going into the round, having five cards, knowing you're going to discard one and being pretty sure which one you're going to discard. How many times did that change and you ended up discarding a different card at the end? I did it like two out of six times. Yeah, I did it about the same amount. It's about two out of six times. There's like most of the time it's pretty consistent, but because of something other people played or an opportunity, I changed it up. If you play a card after someone and end up in the same space, you count as being above them in that space. Yeah. So, and a lot of things are ranked first, second, and third place. Oh, yeah, the stacking. That mechanic not only increases urgency to keep the game moving, I, I found it very realistic for kings or for the time to prefer close you know, horse races over blowouts. In this game, too, it doesn't really help you much to be super far ahead of somebody else in a category. You kind of want to just edge them out because you really are spreading your resources pretty thin. Yeah, in some cases, but I found some advantages to being far ahead in some cases. Like if you get far ahead in the joust, for example, that means other people might give up on that and you don't have to put any more cards into it. 
Yeah, that's true. On the long-term ones, being far ahead is useful. I thought that would work for me in the charity one because I jumped ahead early, but then I couldn't get any more cards and people realized how dangerous it was going to be to let that go. And I ended up being in last place and losing 10 points in that category. Oh. <laughs> it was brutal. I lost a total of 19 points in that game. <laughs> there's, a, there's actually seven different uh, races in this game. And I, I think the first one is one of the interesting one, even though it doesn't give you any points directly. But gallantry gives you an extra opportunity for an extra move, either one, two, or three extra spaces and just uh, nets ahead. You know, at first, I didn't think much of the gallantry board. I was like, what are you talking about? You get like half of what you put into it back. But the truth is having an opportunity to, after everyone else is done moving, to nudge one of your discs somewhere a little bit further ahead. Because these races were all so close, it became very useful to have a little bit of end ending movement. Yeah, it's cool. It's a little surprise, and it's also really utilitarian because you can use it on any space. Yeah. You know, I didn't draw any card for charity, but I can use my gallantry to uh, improve my charity. Yeah, Joe Joe was very big on gallantry. I tried to concentrate on gallantry because it, I the first time I did it, I was I remember just scanning all of the boards. Gee, where do I where, I can move three spaces up? Where do I want to go in the first place? You know, I mean, right, was, exactly. It was like delicious actually choosing, you know, which one I was going to go after. I couldn't do it every turn, but often enough that it was worth pursuing. I really like the art in this game. It was cartoony and in a very lighthearted way, uh, very like um, uh, bright and colorful and cheerful and lighthearted. And I think it added a lot because I think I would have been more stressed out had the art been more serious. Yeah, and it's intense, but it doesn't give you so many choices that you feel overwhelmed. And no. I think the art reflects how lighthearted the game is in that way. You have seven different battles to go into, but you can only play in the four each round at most. At most, right. You might put all your cards into one. Of course, you probably shouldn't do that if you're trying to win. Although somehow I felt like Ed was in every contest, every freaking <laughs> round. Yeah. He had just enough in every category to make him effective. That's why. Well, I never did a, a king service thing. I totally ignored the king service. Yeah, I got 12 points or actually 18 points out of that king service. Yeah, so you got more out of that than I even got in the dragon. Right. The dragon track is this daunting slog that scores you nothing <laughs> until the game's end. But right. but it's got that 17-point thing going for it. Yeah, it dangles that 17-point carrot in front of you. But if you don't get the 17... And, Mike, that's the ultimate win. And the competition is fierce. I got more points in the king track. I got 18. I didn't need the <laughs> yeah. dragon. I was trying to get the dragon, too. I was ahead for a while until Ed kept snagging all those dragon cards. And then I fell to last... Somehow I felt that the dragon was a little unbalanced because, and I know you guys don't agree with me, I know that, um, but I just felt like you could inch your way ahead on each of the other boards and gain points here and there while still competing on the dragon board. So I feel like these other boards were earning you, what, three points, two points, five points around. So if you could get a couple of those and the 17 points, which I felt like was an option, then yeah. you're definitely going to be ahead. Like if you get that dragon, you're going to be ahead because you can compete there and everywhere else. So if you ignore the dragon board and just compete everywhere else, you're going to be getting smaller amounts of points, but not that 17, which is just going to put you over the top. Did the guy who won the dragon win the game? Well, in this case, yeah. yes. But not always, I noticed. I mean, that's a solid strategy, Celeste, but how are you going to do it without neglecting charity and education? Ed managed it somehow. 
I think they put it there as a you know a carrot. And it's kind of a trap for everybody. It, it is a little bit of a trap. Uh, and because think about it, Mikey actually got more points from the King's service, and it's actually safer because you go to King's service. If you meet the threshold, you get those points no matter how other people do. Right. Nobody jumps ahead of you in there. It's a safe category. As far as the drafting goes, I found that it was the easiest drafting card game I've ever played. So I did enjoy that. There's just cards that you get with a picture and, you know, with the board that it's going to work for and a number. So it was nice. It didn't take a long time. Yeah, it's really nice. I think the tougher choices come from like, oh, I got a five of dragon, but it also has a three of charities. And I really want that charity. Yeah. The five <laughs> dragon is clearly better card. So which one do I pick? Right, but it didn't take a whole lot of thinking. Right. It was just like, here are my choices. What do I pick? Uh, it is very intuitive. I, I agree. Yeah, there's usually only two cards in your hand maybe that you want to like agonize over. The rest of them are kind of obviously cards you want to pass. So I think this game is great for casual gamers because of that. Oh, yeah, I'd love to teach this game to anybody who wants to learn it. Okay, it's time to decide whether or not to dig up or bury Medieval Academy. Mike, how about you? This game manages to simultaneously be a thinker and a fast-paced strategy that can be enjoyed by several types of gamers, so I say dig it up. Evan? Well, my ladies and my gents, having not yet put myself to the test, it'd be far from fair to pass judgment on such a contest. Perhaps in a fortnight, I shall offer my thoughts. And Ed, how about you? It's a drafting game that is easy to learn and teach, offering a fun experience with many interesting choices. Many will compare this game with Seven Wonders, and for many groups I played with, the Academy edges it out. So I dig it up. Interesting. Joe, how about you? It's no coincidence that a game with seven victory point tracks plays so simple, or that its simple choices can seem so agonizing. No coincidence, just solid game design. Dig it up. And for me, the drafting and placing of pieces just wasn't enough to engage me. So for me, sadly, it's a berry. I never liked school anyway. Joe, <laughs> where can you find this game? I've seen it online new for $40 and uh, as low as $22 in some of the big box stores. And if you have thoughts about Medieval Academy, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Our next game up this week is British vs. Pirates, Volume 1. Designed by Apollo Randall, produced by Wingo Games in 2017, number of players 2 to 4, ages 14 and up, runtime 40 to 60 minutes. All right, first impressions. Mike, let's start with you. Well, when I looked at the characters, they were so interesting that I was positive I would choose a character for its looks and not its effectiveness. <laughs> Evan, how about you? Will you captain your British ship into battle to preserve the glory of the Empire? Or will you captain your pirate vessel and prove to those imperialists that the ocean does not solely belong to them? Ed, how about you? Lieutenant, send signal that the pirates have been spotted hiding among the islands and beat the quarters. <laughs> Joe, how about you? I didn't play this one, but I kept a weather eye on the action. I was intrigued by how the dice were employed on the ship cards. Well, Ed, let's clear away the raffle, spread sand on the deck, and only load the 32-pounders with quarter weight. I don't think we'll need any more than that to dispatch Mikey and Evan's scurvy-looking black flag brine buckets. But before we run out the guns, let me tell you a little bit about how it's played. This is a team game. One team plays the British Navy, and the other plays Caribbean Pirates. 
Each player chooses a captain and a ship from their side to play. The captain and ship together will make up the strength of their attacking, defending, and maneuvering power. Players sail around a hex map and either evade or engage the enemy, depending on who has the advantage. The goal is to defeat the enemy ships either through boarding actions or cannon fights. Additional factors such as wind and hands of cards will also influence the battle. You can play a last man standing scenario or mission scenarios. Guys, what'd you think? Well, I thought the cards were pretty cool because they were separated into two decks that had the flavor of the different side that you were playing. So the pirates had their own action deck and the uh, British had their action deck, which was totally different from each other. Right, because pirates and British Navy do not have the same advantages or assets. Different tactics. And that also holds true for the captain cards and the ship cards as well. They are unique to whichever side you are playing. I love mm-hmm. that. That's true. There, there's some general themes, like the the smaller ships were good in going into the wind, while the bigger ships were only good going against the wind, something like mm-hmm. that. That general theme tend to go throughout the different ships. Right. So the mechanics were the same for basic ship operations, which would be true. But almost everything in the details were different, and I love that. They spent a lot of care in developing the sides differently. I feel like each side had ships that were that had their equal on the other side, but you choose like a smaller, more maneuverable ship or a, a bigger, heavier ship at the beginning of the scenario. And um, I think dividing your team up with a couple of those would probably be a good idea. Um, me and Evan both chose tiny little sloop-sized ships and... That was pretty rough. Well, I think what happened, Mike, is that we mm. chose our captains first and our ships second, and we probably should have chose ships <laughs> yeah. first and then captains second. No, you're right. <laughs> Man, they, there's a giant gaping hole in the side of my ship. Which side? <laughs> it's my port. Your port. Okay, so that you get, you're protecting your port now. Yeah. Captain Demeter us. Ha, ha, ha. We now, meet again. We've not, joined forces now. Or now it's uh, roll-off time. Roll right? off. I chose a ship that had a name that matched my captain's personality, and uh, it was small. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I chose a captain that had you know certain attributes that I thought were going to be complementary to yours, Mike, but the ship was also small. So we had these two little vessels going uh, up against these mid-sized British ships, and yeah. it proved not to be much of a match. Right. Well, partially because of the shape of the board. I was going to say, the map was not to your advantage. So the map is on squares, uh, and the squares have a set of hexes on them because you move your ships in hex directions, which is great. Made the most sense for ship battle. But um, you lay them out in a T formation, so there are missing corners, and it just didn't give you guys enough space to maneuver. And with a small, fast ship, you need it to be able to get away from the British. We needed to draw you guys away from each other and then double team you and then run away when you got back together again. I think the right. other strategy you could have taken would just head right into us because our guns were less effective up close. So if you came mm-hmm. in and got the short range where your guns were more effective. Or boarding because their boarding action ability was really good. It wasn't any better than yours, really. Um, there's there's risk with boarding, though. I mean, you, if you're firing cannons, you know, if you miss, okay, you, you miss. You board and you fail the boarding, you, your morale gets shot down to nothing. So you, you risk something, I think, larger with the boarding action. Not only do you lose morale for losing the fight, but also the loser takes a point of hull damage, like actual damage that can sink the ship. Because at first, you know, you're damaging your cannons or the fore or the aft. But if you start taking damage to your center, 
your ship sinks if you get to zero. And then there. you're out of the game if you sink. And by the way, one of the things I love, the bag of dice that comes with. Oh, big fat bag of dice. The way that you use the dice to keep track of the ship scores and some stats on your captain card is great. Could you imagine if you'd been marking a sheet for the same stuff, how much more complicated that would have been? That's how you do it in some other similar style games as this. There are sheets or or wax, you know, those wax pencils and plastic covers. I've used those as well. And thank goodness they did use hex maps. Yes. I will say that the the dice can be easily moved or bumped. So it isn't <laughs> Celeste-friendly yeah. so or cat-friendly. a little friendly. low on the cat-friendliness scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, I got to go back to Tower of Madness again. That's the only game so far that I've seen that has a nice click-in spot for the, for the pieces that you need to keep track of things. So I would have loved a little click-in plastic board on top of my card that I could slide my card in where the dice would stay in place. Now, I, I know I comment on art a lot, uh, but I, I really like the artistic representations of the game's personalities, and I think the game did, a, did very well to avoid using pirate names from history or folklore. Some of them seemed eager for action, some of them seemed cautious, and some a little crazy, you know, but they all seemed, you know, like naval officers. Yeah, and they, they all added 100%. The personalities were very carefully thought out. I, I love the art, too. And they have some female captains for the British Navy, which I personally loved. Um, and they looked great. You know, I'd, I'd sail under them. They looked competent. So this is one case where we're thankful for the lack of uh, historical context for uh, something that's actually in the game. Because history isn't always fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, this isn't the kind of game that needed historical accuracy. It's a lightweight game. If it sounded complex, it is not. You could get a lot more detail than this in the co- in ship combat, but this is really nice. I think they hit the important points, though, how important it is to have your cannons on the broadsides and the effect of the damage on that and how the faster ships would have a way to compete against the bigger ships. They did that in a really concise way, I thought. I had no idea there were so many giant octopus attacks in the Caribbean during the Age of Piracy. <laughs> I, mean, I just hope everyone's safe in Staten Island. Good point, Joe. It does bring me to a a little bit of a problem I had, which was the art on the maps. There were actually ships on the maps as art, and I got so confused. It's like, why are you putting ships as art that have nothing to do with my maneuvering? You mean I can go right through that hex where there's a ship clearly painted on the map? So they didn't mean anything, and I wish that they had used, if they weren't going to use meaningful art, then they should have used something that wouldn't have been confusing, like seagulls or something instead of ships. They used uh, red lines to denote anything that actually had meaning on the map, but I can totally see what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I definitely see it. The rules had a, a few ambiguities in it as well in this uh, volume one, which they cleaned up in their new version I read online for volume two. Th- those rules could have used a little bit more playtesting because we were confused in several areas. Yeah, we did a couple of things wrong based on our reading of the rules. Like the crew morale required to use the card. That wasn't a threshold. Or it actually intended to be a cost, and that's clearer in the new rules. Also, there were some action cards such as Rolling Cannon or Thunderous Shot that was not clear whether or not it affected the target ship as well as its neighbors or just its neighbors. Stuff like that. Yeah, I'm glad this game was good enough to make it to a second edition so they can kind of fix some of that stuff. Yeah, so the Volume 2, I guess, uh, successfully funded on Kickstarter and should be shipping next year. Awesome. The other thing I like is the game came with uh, 20 
fairly well-detailed minis. Oh, the minis. How could we forget? I can't believe we forgot to talk about the minis. They're minis of ships, and they are on hex bases. So it's easy to match them to the map and turn them appropriately. You know clearly which side they are because they're either red or gray for the pirates. And then uh, there are a couple yellow ones, I assume, for the Spanish. They're not yellow, Ed. They're gold because they're the they're the <laughs> they're the thing you want to get. There's a couple of uh, ship cars included in the game that were Spanish because they have the Spanish back flag in the back. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that, and again, that could be related to the mission scenarios. We did not get into those, but I'd totally be interested in it. Okay, it's time to decide whether or not to dig up or bury British versus pirates. Ed, what say you? The game works well as a light miniature combat game. You use your cards and your wit to outmaneuver your opponent and send them to a watery depth. But be sure to dig this up from their hold. Joe, how about you? Over the years, I mean, you might say throughout the 20th century, the designing of replayable naval conflicts from the age of sail played out at the tactical level in a way that's easy and fun to learn and play has been a very, very tough nut to crack. Trust me. Apollo Randall's work really shines here. And Evan, how about you? I've been playing games like this one for a long time. More of them spaceship themes rather than ocean themed. Um, It's hard to judge any of those types of games having only played it once, but I will dig it up because I want to try more scenarios. Mike, how about you? It had a lot of personality and a ton of potential for storytelling um, and some scenarios that you can almost integrate kind of like an RPG even. So I have to say, dig it up. I want to see more. You know, I was thinking about using this as an integrated way for ship combat in an RPG. Uh, I think you could definitely um, tweak this to do so. I think there was some uh, cool stuff in the next edition too, because I added like ways to gather resources and new mission types. So I'm looking forward to the volume two when it comes out. Nothing is sexier to Ed than resources. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And for those interested in weighing anchor in a nice shallow waters battle, this is a highly thematic, lightweight combat game. I would absolutely hoist it up the mainsail. Dig it up. So the first version of this game is still available in places like eBay for about 50 but you can go to BritishVersusPirates.com, and that is BritishVSPirates.com, and pre-order... Uh, the reprinting of Volume 1 for 65 and the new one, Volume 2, for 75 right now. And if you have thoughts about British versus Pirates, we would love to hear from you. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Next up, Survive Space Attack, designed by Julian Cortland Smith, Jeff Engelstein, Brian Engelstein, and Sydney Engelstein. Published by Stronghold Games in 2015, number of players 2 to 4, ages 8 and up, runtime 45 to 60 minutes. Okay, first impressions, Joe, let's start with you. I love the premise of the luxury paradise vacation, suddenly under vicious attack by horrible monsters. It reminded me of the Titanic. Evan, how about you? The space station is named Atlantis, so right off the bat, you know it's not going to go well. Mike? This is going to be messy and chaotic. How the heck is anyone going to escape? Ed? Welcome to the height of technology and comfort aboard the space station Atlantis. We regret to inform you that the station is under attack by aliens. Please remain calm and proceed to the nearest escape pod. 
(laughs) (laughs) Wow. I thought space truckers faced brutal hardships, but it turns out not even the opulent space station travelers enjoying the zenith of technological security are safe from the democratic killers, space aliens. But before we get started, Ed, tell us a little bit about how it's played. In Shavai, Space Attack, you try to get your crew to safety. You have ten crew members with values ranging from one to six. Each turn, you have three move actions to move either crew or ships. And then you must remove one station tile and play it based on what it tells you. It could be a new creature, a new ship, or provide a special ability that you can save for later. Lastly, you roll the die and see which type of creature you must move. You may also capture creatures using a fighter or a turret to place them on the board at a later time to annoy your foes. The game ends when the core breach tile is revealed. You sum up the value of your rescued crew with a bonus for each different jump point you reach. The highest total wins. Once again, a hex movement game, which works really well for spaceship travel and sea travel. I found that this game was all about the logistics of moving, and somehow they managed to make that engaging. (laughs) (laughs) Because the ship is blowing up among you. You got to get out of there. (laughs) That's the whole premise. It's a hot mess, and it is... (laughs) And and they really do a good job of making it feel like a hot mess. You know, you've got a lot of places you can go to, and none of them are great. Oh, yeah, because the end keeps creeping on you, that sense of inevitability is always there, you know? Joe said Titanic, and I think that's an excellent analogy because it's a slow crawl to doom. I'm sure that's what he had in mind when they designed it. Oh yeah. I mean, when I first looked at this thing, I thought it—I thought it was going to be like the awful green things from outer space, right? Which is, which is low on the low in the suspense department. You know, it's kind of almost comic. <laughs> yeah, oh, but yeah. no, this was not like that. I kept counting the hexes to myself. Can I make it over there next? Time? Okay. <laughs> but what if that doesn't work? What if he cuts me off? Okay, I gotta have a backup plan. I'm gonna go over here, you know. And it was, you can never be sure what's gonna happen or no. where the aliens are gonna pop up. If you work your butt off, you can make yourself safer, but you're never quite safe. No, mm-hmm. and it starts with a few aliens on the board, but every tile you reveal might put a new one on the board. It really is spooky. Um, and you don't think that when you look at the board. When you look at the game, the cover of the box is so like, survive, space attack. You know, it's all like exciting and colorful and bright. But when you start playing that game, it is more like alien. Yeah. <laughs> the horror. Yeah. yeah, it's horror. You're doing an awful lot of thinking each turn for the the theme, which is running for your life. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, ultimate you... survival game. It is, <laughs> right? it is. The name of the game is Survive. It is, but it's not really running for your life, Mikey. It is planning for your life. You know? <laughs> Plan for your life. It's like, how am I going to get out of here? It's more about yeah. figuring out what to do yeah. rather than running. Yeah, who you're going to throw under the bus to escape. You well, know. the danger comes from all directions. So it's not like, you know, beating feet is, is going to save you. You could run right into the enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, another factor is this is a very cutthroat game because the aliens are not controlled by some AI. They're controlled by your opponents. Mm-hmm. So it's as vicious as they are. Yeah. 
That's what the I think the turrets do that, right? You kill an alien, you could put it aside and play it somewhere else to screw somebody else up. Oh yeah. But that's what the the die roll is. Every turn everybody has to move one alien, and of course they're gonna move the one that hurts your opponent. Yeah, first couple of turns I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm doing really good. Maybe I can wipe out the aliens. Uh, no, not quite. No. <laughs> <laughs> so no. Joe Joe and Ed and I played this um with Max, my son, who's eight. And uh, he he caught he was able to pick up the game, even though there is some complex symbology, or rather the symbology looks complex on the pieces. But um, the symbology is easy enough for really anybody to pick up. You know, no one should be intimidated by it, even though it is just a bunch of wonky-looking alien pictures. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they were going for a little bit of uh, language independence there. Oh, and in our game, Ed, you know, you were saying you've played cutthroat games, and I have no doubt that evil people could, well, I won't say evil people, competitive players. (laughs) 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 Competitive players could really uh, mess up their opponents. But in our game, here's the thing. The meeples that they made for this game are so cute. You kind of, they're just like these little guys in little spacesuits moving around. And and you kind of want everybody. I felt like in our game, we wanted everybody to survive. Yeah, that is not going to happen. Yeah, it, and it did not happen. <laughs> but we kind of placed the aliens off to the sides. And even then, they managed to kill plenty of us. Even Max, I think, kind of caught on quickly because he was moving the alien to, to eat up the, uh, the little meeples every now and then. Well, I'd, I'd like to point out it's also no picnic for the aliens either. I mean, there were plenty of aliens did not, you know, did not survive. Yeah. <laughs> At least somebody's looking out for the aliens. Thank yeah. you, Joe. This isn't aliens versus luxury travelers, <laughs> Joe. Yeah. You're not on the side of the aliens. <laughs> right. Down with the man. The aliens need to have their time. That's now. right. Yeah. Could, although you could set up a game like that. Sure. Oh, from the perspective of the aliens, which you, you lose points if humans get away. Uh, there was a predecessor to this game, too, and so this is kind of a, a new version that has a couple new mechanics to it. And uh, I was lucky enough to be at one of the conventions where they were testing it. The original game was called Survive or Escape from Atlantis. It was released in the 1980s. And instead of a um, space station, then it was a sinking island, and everybody's trying to escape the sinking island, and there, there are sharks and stuff in the water as people are trying to flee to safety. It was a little bit of a simpler game because it wasn't a cutthroat because people weren't able to capture and redeploy creatures, and the tile effects were a little less complex in that game. I felt the game, I, I enjoyed it a lot, but I did feel like the game went on a bit too long. I think that that tile that you have to flip over, which is the final core breach, is buried a little too deep. I think that it could be a couple, maybe one round shorter. I think a learning game is also a factor of that, too. So the first time you turn it, like you said, there's some of the symbology you had to learn to use the first time. And I think after you knew the symbology, it would go a little faster. Okay, it's time to decide whether or not to dig up or bury, survive, space attack. Joe, how about you? I want to dig this up. It sort of seizes you by the throat, especially in the beginning. And the randomizing element of the die rolls does more than just provide resolution it can create actual suspense. Evan, how about you? You had me at chaos. I'm inclined to dig it up. However, I must first face the terror before passing judgment. <laughs> Mike, how about you? I've always been kind of on the fence about this game because, like you said, it does go a little long. Um, but because it does what it intends to do by providing desperate situations and difficult choices, for now, I'll still say dig it up. Ed, how about you? Fun, wild, and desperate race to escape. 
The chaos may be a little bit too much for some, but that mania adds to the sense of despair that is so much on theme. So dig this up. Yeah, I mean, it was a fun escape game with lots of desperate planning. Dig it up. Ed, where can you find it? The game retails for about $35 from what I've seen, and I've seen copies at local gaming stores and online. You can also find its predecessor, the Survive Escape from Atlantis, for around the same price, including the 30th anniversary edition of this game. Ooh, and if you have thoughts about Survive Space Attack, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, just go to our website and click on Become a Supporter Today. And if you have a chance, leave us a review on your favorite podcaster. Join our chat on our Discord server, Which Game First, and our Patreon supporters get access to exclusive channels. Follow us on your favorite social media. We are at Which Game First. Happy gaming, explorers! Happy gaming. Happy gaming. Good morning, gamers. Try to survive.